Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101. We will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon? Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello again, all you diggers out there, and welcome to the next installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. This is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics, all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be This week the first week of December, 36 years ago, a working man was coming home from a long day at the office when he was gunned down in what too often happens every day in America by an infuriating act of gun violence. Of course, he wasn't just an everyman. True, an ordinary husband and father on that day, trying to do what's best for his family, but he was, in fact, John Lennon, ex-Beatle, superstar, and, dare I say it, voice of a generation. Let's face it, rock and roll changed that cold evening. Something more than John Lennon died that day. I remember it well, and I'm sure many of you do as well. I remember the anger, the sadness, the confusion. I remember one question that just wouldn't go away. Why would someone shoot a musician? Shoot John Lennon? 
John and his wife, Yoko Ono Lennon, were living the American dream in their adopted country and were doing what they do best. The posthumous album, the one he was working on that very day, Double Fantasy, clearly proves the case. All John wanted to do that fateful 8th of December was to get back in the game. He'd taken a five-year hiatus from recording and rarely played live. He had instead focused on rebuilding his relationship with Yoko, who he had become estranged from in 1973, and became a full-time house husband, a father to his son Sean, born in 1975, as well as to devote his free time to his art. From the time the Beatles broke up in 1970 until 1975, he continued with his music, always with Yoko and mostly in New York. In fact, John and Yoko needed to be in America in 1971 to find Yoko's first child, Kyoko, who her ex-husband had absconded with after a custody judgment in her favor. John and Yoko believed the child was located in Texas, so in America. While continuing the search for Kyoko, they pursued their music careers in the well-known manner they had for several years. That is to say, they used their fame and art to make political statements. It was a continuation of the Beatles song, The Ballad of John and Yoko, that's all. Well, apparently, one particular event caught the attention of authorities, all the way up to a certain southern senator, and even the president. Why? Well... On December 10th, 1971, John and Yoko performed at the John Sinclair Freedom Rally in the Chrysler Arena at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The concert was a protest in response to the imprisonment of John Sinclair for possession of marijuana. There was even a film released on the show called Ten for Two. It was called that because Sinclair received a 10-year sentence for two joints. It ain't fair, John Sinclair, in the staff all breathing air. Won't you care for John Sinclair, in the staff all breathing air? Let him be, set him free, let him be like you and me. They gave him ten for two, and what else can the judges do? We got to, 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 got to. the attention of the Nixon administration and others in the government who felt the Lenins were a danger to the youth of America. So they wanted them deported. Immediately. No questions asked. No reprieve. No mercy. Why? <laughs> How about the 26th Amendment? On July 1st, 1971, 18-year-olds were now allowed to vote. And 1972 was a presidential election year. So now there were 10 million new voters, young voters who loved the Beatles, voters who might listen to John Lennon tell them to vote for anyone other than Nixon, or so the authorities surmised. So the Lennons needed immigration help. They needed an immigration attorney and one that could help them at first stay long enough to find and secure Kyoko. Enter our interview today. 
On November 3rd, 2016, I had the pleasure of talking with Leon Wilds, the immigration attorney John and Yoko Lennon retained to help fight what seemed at first like a mission of mercy, until Mr. Wilds, at the suggestion of Yoko herself, realized there was something far more sinister at work. True. John had a marijuana conviction in the UK from 1968, and this was a supported reason for deportation. But that is only the tip of the iceberg, as Mr. Wilds will tell us. In his new book, John Lennon vs. the USA, Mr. Wilds lays out all the details in the five-year fight to keep the Lennons in America, at first to find Kyoko, and then finally to obtain permanent residence for both John and Yoko. So let's meet Mr. Leon Wilds and his son Michael, who provides the Ford and currently is the managing partner at Wilds and Weinberg Partners, as we discuss this incredible case and the book, John Lennon versus the USA, the inside story of the most bitterly contested and influential deportation case in United States history. Today, we have Leon and Michael Wilds of Wilds and Weinberg Partners. Mr. and Mr. Wilds, uh, welcome to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's Deeper Digs in Rock. I hope you're doing well, and we look forward to discussing your career as uh, one of America's preeminent immigration attorneys. For our listeners, so they don't get confused, there was a certain client that took up most of your time between 1972 and 1976 that will be of great interest, and we'll get to that shortly. And I must say, your, your story could couldn't be more perfectly timed given the current political climate uh, surrounding immigration law. So first, tell us, how did you get into immigration law? Um, was, it a, was it a passion or something that presented itself uh, that you just kind of followed? Well, after achieving my law degree and a master's after that, I saw a notice on the bulletin board at the law school at NYU where I was attending. Mm that there was a job offer available for someone who uh, understood or could and could speak Hebrew and Yiddish. Oh. That was w- with an organization called HIAS, H-I-A-S, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which was uh, a refugee organization, one of the first and most important refugee organizations. When was this? This was in the late 50s, early 60s. Is that right? 1959. Mm, yeah. So a lot of immigrants from uh, from Europe uh, escaping the post-war. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I developed an interest 
specifically in immigration uh, law. It was a budding field. There weren't a lot of successful lawyers in it. Not the big, the big firms never bothered with it and so on. Oh. There wasn't even a case book on the field at the time because after finishing my work with Hayas, I opened my own office and eventually... And that was in that was in New York City, correct? Yes. And what year was that? That was 1960. Okay. And in 1980, I started to teach as a, an adjunct professor of law at Cardozo Law School in New York. Yeah, I believe you've written several uh, really important papers on uh, immigration law that we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. Actually, this is the first book that I've ever published, but I've done a lot of writing in the field. So a fateful evening, I believe in 1971, <laughs> concerns most of our discussion today. So tell our listeners how you got involved in the immigration case of John and Yoko Ono Lennon. An attorney who I knew had become counsel to Apple Records, and he mm. called me and we had worked on some cases together before he took the job with Apple. And he said, Leon, there is a very important potential client here that I'd like you to meet. In fact, he doesn't come to people, lawyers' offices. Uh, <laughs> right. be, I'd be happy to take you to see him together with my boss, uh, Alan Klein, who is the manager of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. And then John afterwards, yes. And he said, you know, that Alan Klein will be there because he's not going to allow somebody to be hired until he was satisfied that this was the right lawyer for his primary client. Mm -hmm. And so we were taken to John and Yoko's apartment in Greenwich Village, and it was an extraordinary experience. I can imagine. I believe uh, you were unfamiliar with them and their work. Yeah, I asked my friend, listen, who, is, who are these people? He said, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I said, who are they? <laughs> I wasn't very much into rock music, mm. and I must have been asleep for years. <laughs> it was probably, um, it was a very, he said, don't ever repeat that you didn't know who they were. Oh, yeah. So, well, 40 years later, I think it's okay to let that yeah. out. But, uh, <laughs> but certainly, yeah, I believe you came home and told your wife, Ruth, that you had met, uh, was it Jack Lemon and Yoko Moto? Yeah, that was <laughs> best that I could recall the uh, names. And she said to me, are you talking about John Lennon and Yoko Ono? I said, yeah, that's right. That's more correct. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a life changing experience, uh, wouldn't you say? And all these years. Yeah. 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 So when did you realize you were dealing with an extraordinary case beyond just representing celebrities? Uh, you know, in other words, when things didn't normally add up in a simple deportation case. When uh, actually, when I asked for a simple extension of stay, they were here as visitors. And Yoko uh, had a child that she was trying to find and get custody of from a yeah, Kyoko Kyoko Ono Cox, correct? And um, I thought it was just a simple extension application. In fact, I told the lawyer who was with me that uh, he didn't really need me for that because it's such a 
significant and important question that she needs the time here for uh, that I I felt it would be an easy case. Okay. But then then the district director of immigration in New York. Yes, Saul Marks, right? Yes. He called me and he said, uh, Leon, because it's you, I'm going to give you a month. But they wouldn't have gotten anything, and they will never get another <laughs> extension. And they, tell them to get the hell out. Wow, wow! And that—that that was the first inkling that uh, that you had that you were dealing with something a little bit different than your previous uh, immigration cases. Now, I, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the genius of John Lennon, and while she's a world-renowned and unique artist of several disciplines. I was really struck by how significant Yoko's intelligence, grasp, and intuition played throughout this five-year struggle. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, she seemed to understand even better than John in the beginning that it might not be an open and shut extension case and that they might deny it. She was aware of the fact that John had expressed himself as she had on many occasions against our war in Vietnam and other important current issues. And uh, she felt that the government would not be happy with those uh, expressions. Uh, However, we had no way of knowing that it would happen that quickly. So, and I think this kind of like the the smoking gun for that, for the government, was a a concert that was put on in Michigan, in Detroit for uh, John Sinclair. Is that correct? Yes, that happened a month before I was retained and I didn't know anything about it. Uh When I found out uh, that that uh, had taken place, it all started to fit together. Okay. All right. And I think uh, the the night that you met them, there were two significant events. The first was John's explanation of what he thought the reasoning was for the deportation, which was his 1968 conviction of cannabis resin, hash. Uh, and he had to explain that to you. So that was the first piece. And then the second was actually you came up with a strategy that maybe others uh, hadn't considered. Well, I asked him... He, he said we might, we're going to need as much extension time as necessary to find Kyoko and work something out with her father so that we could share her and not, uh, not take her less or more than the time amount that the court would determine was appropriate for each parent. And we soon knew then that we weren't going to get that kind of uh, time and that that hardship that would that Yoko and John would sustain didn't mean a damn thing to the government. Uh, they wanted them out, come hell or high water. Wow, just no no quarter at all, huh? Yeah. So you, I think, looked at the, the hashish conviction and you discovered that you could maybe split hairs legally because a law in the INA statutes had been changed with uh, regards to narcotics and marijuana. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, the statute... At that time, I brought along a copy of it to show to John and Yoko. That night. It said that anybody who had a conviction for possessing narcotics or marijuana. uh, And And that was a recent addition, right? It was a recent change in the law. 
And so as a result, we focused on my first suggestion. And that was, I asked him, is hash marijuana? And he said, oh no, it's much better than marijuana. And uh, I inquired among experts in the field, and I found that I might be able to find the top physician in the country who uh, knew all about that issue and get him to testify that cannabis resin was not marijuana and therefore John did not have a ground of deportation, that it was invoked improperly. Yeah, and I, I think uh, another uh, famous attorney is uh, uh, who kind of gave you that uh, researcher, right? I'm sorry. Uh, Alan Dershowitz? Yeah, I had discussed that issue with several experts, and Alan was one of the ones who told me that he thought that issue and on another issue that came up later in the uh, proceedings that uh, he felt otherwise and that if I researched it, I would find that uh, I might win on that ground. And that was uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon who you yes. uh, contacted, right? Dr. Grinspoon of uh, Harvard Medical School. But he was reluctant to, uh, to testify. Well, he told me at the time that he doesn't testify anymore and that if, I liked, if I'd like his book, he'd be happy to send it to me. But books don't go over well in court <laughs> right. on serious issues. And he eventually called me back and said, can I change my mind? He told me about an unfortunate circumstance. One of his children had a very, very serious disease and was not likely to survive. Mm -hmm. And it, he found out at dinner with that child that the child was in awe of uh, John Lennon. And the moment he heard of how important it might be to his son, uh, he called me and said, I think I'd like to change my mind. If you can get me a lot of stuff uh, endorsed by and autographed by John, uh, I'll be happy to come and testify. So that was the first challenge that we met with the government, but they turned it down nevertheless. Yeah, it doesn't seem in the book, it doesn't seem that that was uh, kind of a, a large player in the in the overall play. Um, but there, there was a second avenue that you pursued, uh, which I think that John and Yoko hadn't considered or maybe uh, other immigration attorneys had told them was impossible. And I believe that was permanent residency. Is that correct? Permanent residency. For permanent residency, you still had to overcome his conviction. The, the conviction, okay. Okay. Yeah. And but we were able to show higher in the court system uh, that the issue of uh, uh, of permanent residency, as we raised it uh, there, uh, I had re done a lot of research, and I found that every American state, the federal government, Mexico, all the other countries that I could research uh, required that a person who, for, for him to be convicted and for the conviction to be valid, the person had to have been, uh, had, had to have known that what he had in his possession was an illegal substance. In other words, in the law of England at the time, if you had 
a, a, a package and you were arrested and it had drugs in it, but you thought it was that you had aspirin in it. Uh, that's the only place in the world where you could have been convicted. Any other place in the world, would you would have been held uh, to be completely innocent because if it could be shown that you didn't know what was in there and you didn't know that it was an illegal substance, you couldn't be convicted. So that's the basis on which we eventually won permanent residence for John Lennon. Yeah, because I believe there was some extenuating circumstances. The uh, detective involved in the uh, drug conviction, a, a well-known uh, pop star hunter, uh, Detective Pilcher, I believe was his name. Uh, he had busted several rock stars around the time that John and Yoko had just started living recently in the uh, the flat where uh, the uh, event took place and were on a, a macrobiotic diet that didn't allow them to even consume drugs at the time, right? Right. He actually came with the drugs and the dogs to sniff them out. Mm. Uh, yeah. And he did that with so many other rock musicians. He, mm -hmm. he subscribed to the theory that rock music was ruining British <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a battle we're still fighting today. So, uh, okay. So throughout 1972, uh, you seem to be playing for time with Saul Marks, the district director of New York uh, for the INS, and uh, and building a case against the government's action. Now, there, as we discussed, a few there there are a few legal options that you used, but most importantly, it seems the third preference application. I think I've got that right. Was was the primary way this sort of twisted. Um, so can you explain that to our audience? All right. To get residence for someone, you first have to get them placed on a waiting list that can be reached. And for outstanding artists, the waiting list was the shortest in uh, what used to be known as the third preference category. And uh, that was for outstanding persons in the arts or sciences. And it included any kind of an extraordinary person who had achieved special consideration in his life in his profession. And both of them uh, were in that category, both John and Yoko. Uh, it's harder for people to understand Yoko's professional skills, but they were in several areas and she, she had reached very high levels of achievement. In oh those. yeah, she's a multimedia artist. I mean, it's her. the world is her canvas when you get right down to it. Right, so what happened was we filed all the papers, and then I found out that nothing was going, nothing happened with it. And I checked into it, and they told me each time I called the district director, uh, Saul Marks, my old friend, uh, each time I uh, called him, he told me that they're under consideration. But when I insisted on going to court to get them adjudicated and they were taken from a safe in the district director's office uh, it was clear that he had no intention of adjudicating them they were stapled together exactly the way I had 
submitted them and never were touched. So them. you knew you knew that this was above Saul. Uh, this was coming directly from Washington. At yeah, that point. it was. It was done in such a way. So it was so outrageous that they had no embarrassment for the steps that they were taking. They they were not even trying to be reasonable. So really, there wasn't like some sort of aha moment of, oh, my God, the Nixon administration through uh, John Mitchell is trying to subvert this case that I'm working on. It is just a constant building of water on the dam that then busts. John Mitchell wore two hats. One was as the attorney general of the United States in charge of the Justice <laughs> yes. Department, the Immigration Service, and all the law enforcement in the country. And the other hat was that the head of Creep continued <laughs> to reelect the president, the uh, President Nixon. And when he uh, got word that Lenin was dangerous to the re-election of Nixon. He took all these actions. And of course, uh, during the Watergate time, uh, he ended up being in jail with a lot of the other people involved in the case. Yeah. Now, excusing Nixon's uh, well-known paranoia that's been proven time and again, uh, there was an actual concern of the administration being concerned about the 1972 election. And that was the uh, ability that 10 million new voters would be coming onto the rolls. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, that was the, uh, I forget the amendment. The, the, it that, was the 26th amendment. 26th amendment, yeah, that allowed 18-year-olds to vote, correct? Actually, the, uh, the it became very serious because when you dropped the voting age from 21 to 18, you were taking in the people who for years had been immediately admitted to the Army and the Armed Forces of the United States and sent to Vietnam. Yeah, a very unpopular Vietnam by 1972, yes. And and nobody could express the unpopularity of Vietnam better than John Lennon. Uh, Yeah, he had made a a second career out of it uh, starting about 1967, 68. So what was it like watching your class? clients discuss uh, his immigration case on national TV like Mike Douglas or or Dick Cabot. Yeah, it was very exciting for me. When they were on the stage, I would often be off the stage uh, there to answer questions or uh, interrupt them. Yeah, in fact, I think you did appear with John on the Dick Cabot show. Yeah, we had a number of appearances. What's interesting, you'll find in the book itself, is a number of uh, terrific pictures of John and Yoko uh, as they lived through that terrible experience and uh, as we made appearances. Just to cut in here, it's uh, Michael Wilde's Leon's son. The book has great anecdotal notes that John used to write to my father when they were being followed by FBI agents. He would send little notes in. Yeah, phone bugged and all kinds of things. Yeah, All kinds of sorts of stuff. And in those days, it was before VCRs. And typically, our father would come home and have little tape recorders set up. And we took the big, clunky black and white TVs and would actually walk a tape recorder over to the television. We couldn't get the video of our father until maybe 30, 40 years later. 
but we heard the same uh, scholarly voice. Uh, Dad and John drew a very strong personal relationship together through this case. Yeah. And he, and he was a natural. It comes across uh, that way in the book. Yeah, he was a natural when he sat with uh, John because he was the he was the heavy on the law, and John was the personality and the witty one, and it came out in such a fashion that even to this date we have such a close personal uh, friendship. Yoko still sending people in uh, to our office, and we've maintained that collegiality despite the passage of decades. Yeah, yeah. So er- early in the case, uh, it seemed, uh, Leon, you-, you were in a legal wrangling with uh, with two guys that you were quite familiar with, uh, Saul Marks, uh, the uh, district director, and then the INS's lead prosecutor, Vincent Sciano. Was this normal business? And when did you, you you know you were getting a runaround? And was it both of them? And I and I think Vincent's, which I think you call Vinny, is is a is an interesting character because it came across that maybe he wasn't 100% in on this. Well, he was in on it, but I think he maintained his uh, separate opinion on everything and stood us apart from them when they they met together. They, um, I, I was able to trust him more than the other officials uh, there. I knew him for many, many uh, years. He was the best attorney they had in the immigration service. Mm-hmm. And you'll see some interesting, there were some interesting experiences we had. You're very kind to your adversaries in the book. <laughs> well, I respected them. You yeah. see, we tried to, one of the things that I pursued in the case, which we haven't spoken about yet, is my lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act to try to get information as to whether or not the government had a system where they decided that some people simply shouldn't be removed from the United States no matter how deportable they were because of extreme and unusual hardship in their cases. Yeah, and you are the first attorney to actually ask for uh, for that. Is that correct? Yes, and we have been told by one district director after another that there is no, there was no such provision. But when I sued under the Freedom of Information Act, I found that there was such a provision. A it, kind of basically prosecutorial discretion, right? Yes, and a provision that was very strong. It said that in any case where the district director determines that adverse action would be unconscionable because of the existing of humanitarian factors, he shall recommend consideration for non-priority. And they had since, for over a hundred years, the Immigration Service had denied that there was such a provision. When they delivered 18,400 cases, copies of papers in those cases to my office, there was jubilation here. 1,843. Yeah. <laughs> Just to get the exact number. Very good, Michael. So let, let's talk about the March 16, 1972 deportation proceedings just for a moment. So in 72, you, you had 
two deportation proceedings, March 16th and May 21st. And I think this is where things really begin to take a turn. Uh, the first is Yoko comes with some information that's new. Uh, and I believe it's that she already had some sort of residency. Is that right? Yeah. What uh, upset me about it was the fact that I'm entitled to see all of their files under the Freedom of Information Act. And they never told me and they knew that he had, she had already become a permanent resident. They didn't have authority to place her under a deportation proceeding. Unfortunately, we couldn't prove that she continued to reside here uh, each year after she got her residence based on her earlier marriage. Uh, So we proved we got her residence all over again based upon her third preference petition approval as an outstanding artist. And that separated the cases. Now Yoko was pretty much guaranteed staying here looking for Kyoko, but you still had to deal with John Lennon, right? Right. Yeah. And then on, on that May 21st, what's really interesting, I, and I want to trot this out because you brought the director of the New York MoMA in, Thomas Hoving, who later goes on to make an astute comment on John's career. And this is where there's a little bit of rock and roll archaeology for our listeners here. Do you remember that quote well enough to recite it? Uh, no, I don't. Do you mind if I do? I would appreciate hearing it again. There are few people in the last period of this decade in all of the arts, whether it's painting or sculpture or architecture or performing arts, who have contributed so much in an extremely deep and essential manner as Mr. Lennon. I take that as high praise, wouldn't you? Without any question. Yeah. And then you brought out some big guns here in the INS. Uh, I think Dick Cavett shows up, uh, Alan Klein uh, you brought on to the, uh, the stand. Uh, and then statements from the Archbishop of the American Episcopal Church at the time, Paul Moore, mayor of New York, Lindsay, uh, and even an ex-British ambassador to the U.S., Lord Harlech, who <laughs> elegantly fires some shots at the U.S. government. Yeah. So then you had to wait a year for any word, right? Yes. What, yeah. what was that like? And what were John and Yoko going through uh, at that time? That, it must have been unnerving for them to just constantly be afraid that, you know, the hammer's going to come down. Yeah, it was very difficult on them. But uh, they knew that no matter what would happen, I was here to uh, to hold back the tide. And uh, I feel very grateful that I was able to be successful in their behalf because it was a very, very important issue. And you know that this book is being published by an imprint of the... The the New York Bar Association, right? No, the American Bar. Oh, American Bar, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They feel it shows what one lawyer can do for one client. They found that a lot of people are not going registering for law school anymore because they they find it difficult. They don't think they can accomplish much. Mm. This was a case that showed what a a lawyer can do. Yeah, you you worked very diligently over a five-year period to beat the powers that be um, all the way to the highest levels of government, which uh, maybe it didn't know at the time, uh, although maybe Yoko did, but uh, you, uh, you fought the good fight. So last couple of questions. You know, I know we, we, we have a couple of press conferences. Uh, Saul Marks uh, has one. You follow up on April's Fool's Day with, with another. There's uh, the Regional Director Group 8 memo. Uh, but finally, in the end, there's a three-judge panel that rules in your favor. Is that correct? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, and that basically now you didn't feel that it was a complete victory, but by having this appeals court rule in your favor, that must have felt really good and and feel that you, the tide was now uh, turning for you. Yes, and even after that decision, John got a uh, call from one of the other uh, Beatles who had this same kind of oh George, yeah George, and George said that the the American consul in London told him that he did not have to apply for a waiver of his ineligibility under the Lennon Doctrine. So John called me at the time and said, Leon, I'm a doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that because that has come into play several times in 40 years, including fairly recently. So what what is the Lenin Doctrine and, and how has that been used uh, over the years? We, we're very, very grateful that wherever it has been possible to uh, use it, we were able to use it right here in this office. I can't tell you about the experience of all the other lawyers, but uh, we have uh, made good use of the efforts that we made in the Lennon uh, case. And I feel very grateful for, to have been the person chosen to handle his uh, case. I did a job that everybody seems to appreciate now, even though it's 40 years years later. I'm just a slow writer, I guess. <laughs> Brad's actually practicing in the same building where John uh, used to call in him. I'm 51 years old. We're paying rent in this building 51 years. We've expanded to Miami, to Los Angeles, to New Jersey. But in the end, it's a lawyer waiting to help foreigners. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Imagine song and you can say um, that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, this case opened up the door to President Obama's use of dad's litigative tool in awarding a deferred status to children, but for the grace of their parents, were brought here by no other act. Yeah, DACA or what's called the Dreamers Act, right? That's right. Yeah, very, very, very significant. And, I, and I'm sure that's not your intention the night you walked in and met John and Yoko Lennon for the first time and came up with a beginning strategy on how to protect them and their interests here in the United States. Well, I have since gained a great appreciation for the seriousness of uh, the kind of music that you're more of an expert in than I am. Well, well, thank you. But you, you know, the, the service you've done. So, Mr. Wilds, both Michael and Leon, Thank you so much for joining us today on Deeper Digs in Rock. This was a real rock and roll archaeological dig for us, and we really, really do appreciate your time, you know, for what you did for John and Yoko, and by virtue, rock and roll, but most importantly, for your service to the people of the United States. You are a hero in the annals of rock, I, I assure you. So thank you very much. Our pleasure, and people can learn more about this on our website if they're interested at uh, wildlog.com. Okay. All right, Michael, Leon, again, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you continued success, and we look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the future. Thank you, Christian. Bye.
you enjoyed our discussion today with Leon and Michael Wilds. They are extraordinary immigration specialists, and it's easy to say John and Yoko were extremely lucky that day in 1971 when they retained the services of Wilds and Weinberg PC. This was some real rock and roll archaeology diggers. Please pick up a copy of John Lennon vs. the USA, the inside story of the most bitterly contested and influential deportation case in United States history by Leon Wilds, published by the American Bar Association. Available now. Until next time, keep up the rockin', and we'll see you right here again for our next installment of Deeper Digs and Rock. social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.